Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. We're continuing our discussion with Spin with by Robert Charles Wilson. And I'm going to go, I have the hardback, so I'm going to be going, I'll start the discussion off with a passage on page 109. And for those of you who have paperback, let's find out. This is the chapter called Under the Skin. And it's three pages in from the end of that chapter. The, the chapter that continues after that is Celestial Gardening. So three pages in from that. Uh, what page would that be? It starts the passage I'm going to read, and it's hardly an original observation. Why is the spin barrier permeable to human artifacts like satellites? Page 127. Pardon me? Page 127. Page 127. Okay, can we go there on the paperback version? And now they're talking about the hypotheticals, the ETs that have created the spin barrier that's surrounding the planet Earth. Okay? Let me read a little bit before that. Uh, the hypotheticals, if we must call them that, uh, and I suppose we must, everyone does, they expect something from us. I don't know what, a gift, a signal, an acceptable sacrifice. How do you know that? It's hardly an original observation. Why is a spin, barriable, bar, spin barrier permeable to human artifacts like satellites, but not to meteors or even Brownlee particles? Obviously, it's not a barrier. That was never the right word. Under the influence of the stimulant, Jace seemed particularly fond of the word Obviously. Obviously, he said, it's a selective filter. We know it filters the energy reaching the surface of the Earth, so the hypotheticals want to keep us, or at least the terrestrial ecology, intact and alive. But then why grant us access to space? Even after we attempted to nuke the only two spin-related artifacts anyone has ever found, what are they waiting for? Ty, what's the prize? Well, maybe it's not a prize. Maybe it's a ransom. Pay up and we'll leave you alone. Now, the next two paragraphs is what I really want to emphasize. He shook his head. It's too late for them to leave us alone. We need them now. And we still can't rule out the possibility that they're benevolent, or at least benign. I mean, suppose they hadn't arrived when they did. What were we looking forward to? A lot of people, we think, were facing our last century as a viable civilization, even as a species. Global warming, overpopulation, the death of the seas, the loss of arable land, the proliferation of disease, the threat of nuclear or biological warfare. We might have destroyed ourselves, but at least it would have been our own fault. Would it, though? Whose fault exactly? Yours, mine? No, it would have been the fault of several billion human beings making relatively innocuous choices to have kids, drive a car to work, keep their jobs, solve the short-term problems first. When you reach the point at which each of the most trivial acts are punishable by the death of the species, then obviously, obviously you're at a critical juncture, a different kind of point of no return. So now let's connect that passage with the idea of people being able to destroy themselves, being able to destroy their world, with this other passage, which again is on my page 144 and your page... 173? 173 for the paperback version, where they're talking about a related topic. And I want to see if you can connect the two passages, the passage that I just read to this passage. And again, this is in the chapter 
uh, 4 times 10 to the 9th power. And on the hardback, it's page 144. We had planned on anonymity. Any of the Archport cities should have been a safe place for a moneyed American to lose himself. We had settled on Padang, not just for its convenience. Sumatra was the landmass closest to the arch, but because its hyperfast economic growth and the recent troubles with the new Reformasi government in Jakarta had made the city a functioning anarchy. I would suffer through the drug regiment in some undistinguished hotel, and when it was finished, when I was effectively remade, we would buy ourselves passage to a place where nothing bad could touch us. That was how it was supposed to go. Now, this is a situation where So what we have here is the concept of someone who has wealth, someone who has power, using the new Martian drug to enhance and extend their life, number one. And then we have the concept of the wealthy, the powerful, needing to do something else in this passage to separate themselves from the masses. What's going on here? And how does this connect with the passage that I just read before? In the passage that I just read before, we're talking about all the problems, global warming, overpopulation, the death of the seas, the loss of arable air, proliferation of disease, and whether the hypotheticals were trying to protect us from that critical moment. Seems like there's a lot of potential for this drug to be abused by the powerful people, the people who want to make themselves different and better than the masses, because they would say that they can't just give it out to everyone because of the problems that they just mentioned, things like overpopulation. If this drug makes you live, you know, 60 years longer, then that would increase the population problem and all of the other problems that come with it by a huge factor. So it seems like there's a lot of... Um, okay, so you're now you're raising logical issues for why they wouldn't want to mass market this thing. That's good. But what are some of the issues that would be more psychological? Not I mean, marketing. If, if, they don't, if they don't give it to everyone, if they're just they would just be sharing it with the elite. That would just that would cause now if more they do share people. it with the elite, that's the question. That's a good point. If they do share it with the elite, what does that say? Who you just raised two points. The idea of mass marketing it, getting it to everybody. And then you said, but sharing it with the elite. But there's a confusion here that essentially everybody runs into. And you're you're hitting it exactly. You've got two feet on one on different on different stones. One stone that you're stepping on is saying the idea of mass marketing it, mass distribution with the masses. The other one is not sharing it. There's a tension here, don't you see? You've got a two you've got a tension. And it is really fundamental in regard to politics in general. What's that tension? What is the psychology of the elite? What is psychology of people in power? They don't necessarily want to share things with the masses. 
don't necessarily want to give the masses. Yes, I know. I heard you said, but then, but then what? Because um, if like the masses' reaction to that information can cause more problems than it's worth. Okay, now you're raising something sideways, a little bit of a, a side issue. The masses' reaction. That's a really good point. The masses' reaction. Keep filling this in. Fill in the blanks. There's something going on that you're not seeing. Now we're talking about the idea of sharing with the masses. Now you're talking about the masses' reaction. Then you're talking about not sharing with the masses. What else is going on? What about the psychology of the elite? Okay, let's switch it a little bit. Edward O. Wilson. Who is Edward O. Wilson? Edward O. Wilson is a famous biologist up in Harvard. And what Edward O. Wilson does is he studies ants. But more than ants, he actually studies people and things. But he got his trademark on ants. And he talks about things related to evolution. And one of the things he says is that in the Darwinian march for evolution, the thing that is emphasized according to the Darwin thing, is survival of the fittest. And with survival of the fittest, what that means is that people who will survive will people who will be who, who will survive the most, the best, the easiest, especially under hard times, will people who will be thinking about themselves first, what's in front of their plate first, what food is in front of their face. Secondly, their family. Thirdly, their village. And a distant fourth will be the world. Prophets, the ones who are concerned about everybody, are the anomalies. They are the ones that normally don't happen. But in the Darwinian march, most of those will be weeded out. And what you'll have is the dominance in the gene pool of genes that are selfish. Selfish genes will dominate. And when you have, from Edward O. Wilson's point of view, an entire planet of selfish genes that then gets to a point where in the first passage you have the possibility of self-destruction of the level of the entire civilization because everybody has selfish genes hardwired into their brain, into their thinking pattern. Suddenly you have a situation where everybody has to be thinking about the world, the globe. But the hard wiring is selfish. Do you get the problem? How long does it take to change the hard wiring? A long time. It took thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years for the hard wiring to get to where it is now. And suddenly, in a short amount of time that you have to avoid environmental catastrophe, you have to suddenly, suddenly, Rewire everybody so they're thinking about the world rather than themselves. That produces what Everett O. Wilson calls the juggernaut of evolution. In a long period of time, you develop selfish genes dominating in the, in the population. And then in a short amount of time, that all comes to a crunch all of a sudden. And you have to change everything to have basically the genes of the prophets, the globally thinking genes work. And what Edward O. Wilson says that this has to be done through reason, through, th through thought, and that some species will not survive. 
The juggernaut takes a few hundred years to work out, he suspects. Like 300 years to work out. And if it takes a few hundred years to work out, if you have a very selfish species then that uses the energy that it consumes very quickly, <laughs> then that species will simply not have enough time to change and it will die out. And if you have a species that uses the energy less quickly, then that energy will be, that species will be able to survive long enough to get through the juggernaut. Now, all this originally turns out to be what kind of food you eat back in the old days before there was technology. For example, if a lion became sentient, a lion is a meat eater. Everything it eats, it's meat. It doesn't <coughs> eat, it doesn't eat broccoli. So, to get to a point where you're feeding a lion, you have a very, all energy is solar energy. It gets absorbed by the grass and then transferred into an animal and so on like that. But it eventually, as you go up the food chain, you're still eating solar energy variously transformed. And you lose 90% of the energy every time it goes through a transformation. So if you're a lion, you're very inefficient at your use of energy. So a lion that was sentient, if that species became sentient, that, would have, that, that species would have a very short time in the juggernaut and would likely become extinct. A cow that became sentient, a cow species, would have a longer time because they ate just grass. Well, they could keep eating grass for a long time and the population problem wouldn't get out of hand. They'd get able to get through the juggernaut. Humans, on the other hand, are right in the middle. We don't have a short intestine like 10 feet like the lions, but we don't have a long intestine and two stomachs like a cow. We're in the middle. And so we can survive as vegetarians, which were, we consume energy less rapidly, or we can also survive as meat eaters, which consume energy more rapidly. So the point is, the selfish genes may dominate, but the juggernaut time period may be variable. So what we get in this period, what we get in this, and I'm going to push it a little bit because we're running out of time. What we get in this section, in this passage is, you're seeing the play of the elite. The thoughts of the elite are naturally, from Edward O. Wilson's point of view, selfishly oriented. And when you get selfish-oriented genes, you think about me first. And the elite have the ability to think that way. The lesson to draw from that, if a planetary disaster was imminent, what is Robert Charles Wilson telling us? The elite can save themselves first before the people. Exactly that the elite will act to save themselves first. They will work it out. They will be concerned about the masses, but logistically, they'll figure out their own escape plan first. Does that make sense? Who owns Walmart? And then we'll, cl we'll close after that. Pardon me? Yeah, well, what's, it's Sam... Yeah, you got it. Yeah. Now, do you know who? What? Uh, you know where he has placed his uh, his sanctuary, his escape place, in the mountains of the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. He's got actually a helipad, a helicopter ready to take him. Meaning, if something were to happen, some planetary disaster, he's got the helicopter waiting, the helipad ready to land in the in the uh, mountains in in Arkansas, and a huge underground cavern for him and his family. Now, you don't see those being sold at Walmart, 
<laughs> but do you get the idea? Now, I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying that's how the elites think. And that's what Edward O. Wilson is saying, that the elite tend to think about themselves first. Now, one of the things I want to bring to your attention, and then we're going to end, and we're going to continue with spin next time, is that Robert Charles Wilson is writing from a, from a Western point of view, and that our understanding of Darwinian evolution, the, the survival of the fittest, may be Western. You have other societies, like China, that may not think that way. The entire society may think collectively. It may not be that Darwin, as we understand it, is an entirely total package, as Darwin and Edward O. Wilson might be presenting it. It may be that there's some cultural aspects to Darwin's theory, and that it is possible for a species, for a group, a collective, such as an entire country of China, to think differently, to think collectively, in which case it throws the whole idea of competition versus cooperation into a question. So this is, see, this is, so this raises another issue of, of uh, the perspective of Robert Charles Wilson. Should we just accept it as it is, or is it really, is it culturally defined? But what that does tell us, if it is culturally defined, is within the West, Robert Charles Wilson is saying, this is the type of behavior we'd get from the elite. And now we're going to page 189 in your paperback versions, or in the hardcover, it's 157, chapter on chapter called Hospitality. Now, with spin, we're going to have to cover the whole rest of the book today. So we're going to jump around a lot till we get to the end, because I have to make sure you get to the end, because the end has some really interesting sections that's totally different than anything else we covered in the course and is exceptionally relevant to politics as of today. So let's look at uh, this science fiction book from the perspective of page 189, Hospitality, and let's look at something that could impact us. So let me read a little bit. Again, the chapter is Hospitality. Now we can't even count on Carl's job. My heart was beating so hard last night. I mean, very rapidly, unusually rapidly. I thought it might be, uh, you know, what? You know, CVWS. CVWS, cardiovascular wasting syndrome, had been in the news in the last few months. It had killed thousands of people in Egypt and the Sudan. And cases had been reported in Greece, Spain, the southern U.S., it was a slow-burning bacterial infection, potential trouble for trouble for tropical third-world economies, but treatable with modern drugs. Mrs. Tuckman had nothing to fear from CVWS, and I told her so. People say they dropped it on us. Who dropped what, Mrs. Tuckman? That disease, the hypotheticals. They dropped it on us. Now remember, the hypotheticals are these aliens that did the spin in the first place to put that thing that's covering over the whole planet. Everything I read suggests CVWS crossed over from cattle. It was still mainly an ungulate disease, and it regularly decimated cattle herds in northern Africa. And then uh, Mrs. Tuckman says, cattle? Huh. But they wouldn't necessarily tell you, would they? I mean, they wouldn't come out and announce it in the news. Okay, um... What do we see in that spot? Let's just talk briefly. We've got a lot to cover today, so let's just talk briefly about each passage. What do we see in that spot that's 
unusual, that's interesting, that relates to politics. Imagine you're on a talk show and you're being interviewed on CNN or some other, and they ask you something relevant about that. Something's in this passage that relates to politics of politics of decline, politics of decay, politics of troubles, situations that we may be facing today, these days. Go, what's going on in here? What's, what is a symptom that Robert Charles Wilson is telling us to look for in spin? Go ahead, speak up loud. Speak um, up loudly. loudly. Well, I, I just noticed, I don't know if this is exactly what you're looking for, but uh, that there's a great deal of paranoia in what she's saying. Paranoia. Go um, ahead. Yeah, just because that there is this disease which is um, allegedly uh, from cows yeah. and, and from cattle. and But still, even though that's, I don't know, I guess in, at least in the scientific community, uh, in, in the medical community, an accepted fact in the book, uh, but still, she's um, she kind of finds a scapegoat in places to blame on the hypotheticals, and um, as an, it's it was somebody's intention to place this disease on yeah, people, and that's it, it, it was somebody's creation. That's it. This conspiracy theory. See, when things start going badly, the first thing that happens is that people start blaming conspiracies. Now, I'm not going to mention any names now, but I heard an interesting story yesterday. There was a professor in the biology department, and I won't even mention which department, uh, which university, but there was a biology department, there was a professor, and he was going to a conference. And he was in this conference, he was going to stay in his hotel. And then this uh, graduate student actually went up to him and said, well, you know, can I stay in your room because I don't have enough money to pay for my own hotel? And the professor looked at him and said, no, I'm like, you're not going to stay in my room. You'll figure out something else to do. Now, the graduate student was gay and very concerned about HIV. And the professor was a well-known biologist. And then another graduate student asked him after, afterwards and said, well, why did you ask him to stay in, the, in, his, in his room? Well, and he said, well, you know, A, I don't have the money to pay for the hotel, and B, uh, I just thought I wanted to talk to him to get him to do the stuff. You see, he's a famous biologist. He can come up with a cure for HIV, but he just doesn't want to do it. He won't do it. It's his fault. He's trying. He's hiding it back. He's, he's holding it back purposely. And then I was talking to this person just the other day, and I said, was the, person, was the graduate student serious? And she said, yeah, he was serious. He actually thought the professor could solve the problem with HIV. And uh, he needed time, and that's why he wanted to stay with the professor in, his, in the hotel room. And uh, the professor um, had, uh, you know, a professor apparently had reacted two ways. A, he didn't want to stay with a graduate student in the hotel. And B, he, didn't, he was a married man. He didn't want to stay with a gay guy in the in, in, in the in the uh, in the same room, especially someone who he didn't even know, and he was just going to a conference. But the but the student was absolutely certain that the professor was going to kill him by not coming up with a solution for HIV. Now it made absolutely no sense at all. It was absolutely crazy. It was nuts. It was totally bonkers. First of all, you never go out to a professor and say, "Can I stay in your hotel room?" And then to blame them for 
not solving the HIV crisis is like crazy. I mean, a professor would love to solve the HIV crisis. They'd earn a billion dollars in a week <laughs> with, the, with the cure. So, uh, but that's the way it is. When things look bad, when things look like they're very troubled, you start blaming people. And you blame all sorts of people. And when troubles happen in society, the first thing they say are, it's the Bilderbergers, it's the government, it's to this, it's to that. There's a conspiracy all over the place. And one of the things that the governments know is that that will happen if tough times actually occur. That when things become rough, there will actually be a blaming thing and the governments have to be able to protect themselves. Now, during World War II, the V-1 bombs, the buzz bombs, were falling all over London. You could not talk to a Londoner who did not say that there was a clear pattern of where in the city those bombs were being targeted. They knew that there was a conspiracy with certain areas that were being bombed. I and mean, they knew they were trying to figure it out. Now, after the war was over, William Filler, great, famous uh, uh, statistician, did a, a test using the Poisson distribution, broke London up into grids, and then showed where all the V-1 buzz bombs actually landed. And sure enough, it was a completely random distribution. It was just totally random. The Nazis were just shooting those bombs over. <laughs> they were landing wherever they would land. Some of them would go into the English Channel. Some of them would land in London and so on like that. But the people actually would have sworn there was a clear pattern. Okay? So that's one of the things that's happened. When times become rough, blaming occurs. And people cannot be dissuaded. You cannot tell them, no, it's not that way. Meaning, irrationality takes over. Now let's turn the page, go to the next page, and let me read another section. But Mrs. Tuckman's condition, okay, so we're talking about Mrs. Tuckman still. But Mrs. Tuckman's condition was far from unique. The whole world was reeling with anxiety. What had once looked like our best shot at a survivable future, the terraforming and colonization of Mars, had ended in impotence and uncertainty, which left us no future but the spin. The global economy had begun to oscillate, consumers and nations accumulating debt loads they expected never to have to repay. While creditors hoarded funds and interest rates spiked, extreme religiosity and brutal criminality had increased in tandem at home and abroad. The effects were especially devastating in third world nations or collapsing currencies and recurrent famine helped revive slumbering Marxist and militant Islamic movements. The psychological tangent wasn't hard to understand. Neither was the violence. Lots of people harbor grievances, but only those who have lost faith in the future are likely to show up at work with an automatic rifle and a hit list. The hypotheticals, whether they meant to or not, had incubated exactly that kind of terminal despair. The suicidally gruntled religion and their enemies, including any and all Americans, Brits, Canadians, Danes, etc., or conversely, all Muslims, dark-skinned people, non-English speakers, immigrants, all Catholics, fundamentalists, atheists, all liberals, all conservatives, for such people, the consummate act of moral clarity was a lynching or a suicide bombing, a fatwa or a, pro or a pogrom. 
and they were ascendant now, rising like dark stars over a terminal landscape. We live in dangerous times, Mrs. Tuckmanu, and all the Xanax in the world wasn't going to convince her otherwise. What can we get from this section from Spin by Robert Charles Wilson? What do we see here? Yeah, absolutely. When they see things coming apart, they go bonkers. But what else do we see? Go ahead. She's not actually sick. She's not actually sick. She just thinks she's sick. It's really just anxiety, and it increases as people lose hope. Okay, that's about Mrs. Tuckman. But what about the rest of the world? They see that there's no... They think there's no foreseeable future. They think that the world is going to end, so therefore they see no issue with doing things that would have a bad effect in the long term, but for a short term, it's Okay, that's a good point. Go ahead. Basically, the only thing that's keeping us from going crazy and killing all the people that annoy us is fear of repercussions in the future. Actually, he's saying something that, and he's saying something else. Um, fear of repercussions, that's one thing. That's the rule with the, with the, with the, uh, with force, with sanctions. But he's also saying the reverse, that the only thing that's really keeping us sort of calm now is the belief that the end is not imminent. The belief that there is some future. Now, there's some things, there's two things that, that are important that really get from this passage. The first is signals he's talking about. What signals to look for when things start looking like they're Chinua, like Chinua Achebe once said in the title of his novel, when things fall apart. So Robert Charles Wilson is giving us things to look for, telltale signs. But he's also saying what happens when, when everything goes to pieces. What are the telltale signs that he's thinking that you should look for? Well, let's look at them. Extremism. What's that? It's extremism. Extremism, for sure. What about some of these things? The global economy had begun to oscillate. Consumers and nations accumulating debt loads they expected never to have to repay. Creditor hoarded funds and interest rates. What about all that stuff? Does it sound sort of familiar? What are you seeing in here? What is he saying? He's saying when things start turning bad, you're going to see some warning signs. One of the first things you should say is when you read a passage like this from from a uh, from a science fiction book is he's giving the warning signs that the government will not say. Remember, the government is interested in keeping control. That's its primary motive of doing everything: keep things under control. So, but Robert Charles Wilson is saying, what are some of the signs you should be looking for? The global economy had begun to oscillate. Well, our global economy is about as dicey as you can get right now. First thing you should be saying is saying, hey, that's sort of us now, isn't it? I wonder if we are sort of on the edge. Consumers and nations accumulating debt loads they expected never to have to repay. 
the U.S. cannot repay its debt. Ireland is within a very short time going to go belly up. Portugal is expected to follow soon after that. Europe doesn't have enough money to rescue those economies. It already rescued Greece, and that extended it basically as much as it could do it. If it's got to do the same thing for Ireland and Portugal, what next? What other country is going to follow? You know, they used to say dollars were safe. Now people are saying, let's get rid of the dollar. China and Russia are trading now in local currencies, meaning China and Russia, they no longer exchange in dollars. When China and Russia exchange currency, they use their own currency. Russia's got oil. China's got consumer goods. They've got plenty of their, their own currencies are good enough. They're now, as of last week, they're now completely eliminating the dollar in their transactions. Well, you can even say, well, can they go to some other currency, the euro? People are worried about the euro, dumping the euro. Meaning, their, uh, the debt load is at a point where they cannot repay it. Now, the question you have to ask is, is government ever going to say, we just can't pay this? No, they're not going to say that. One of the signs you, as scientists, should be saying is, are they acting as if they're not going to have to pay it? You know, at some point, you don't have to pay it. Let me give you a good example. My stepmother. When my father died, my stepmother was a widow. And she was a wonderful woman, and she kept on spending and spending and spending. She had plenty of money to live on, but she spent way more. And as it turned out, she just kept on starting to use credit cards and more credit cards and debt. She started to pay as if she would never have to pay it back. And sure enough, as soon as she died, people looked at the books and she had racked up over $100,000 of completely unpayable debt on the credit card. She was using credit cards to pay credit cards. What was it? She was racking up debt as if she would never have to pay it back. And in fact, she knew darn well she would never have to pay it back. <laughs> she knew she was headed out, so what's there to lose? So the question is, when nations start acting like my stepmother, you should start asking yourself, do they know something that you don't know, that you're not being told? When, you have to understand, the United States and all of Europe are not <coughs> ruled by idiots. These are smart people. Now, when they're racking up a debt in a very short amount of time, at a level of 10 years, at a point that you go from one of the most prosperous nations on the planet Earth to a bankruptcy case, you have to say, did, are they idiots or are they doing it on purpose? Is there something that they're not telling you? That's a question you have to ask. And one of the things that Robert Charles Wilson is saying, you, ha you should make those questions because what you're talking about is a whole planetary system right now that's, a, that's on the brink. Now, it may be that we'll pull back, but we don't know how. Right now, the opinion columnists like... Uh, like a, a David Brooks and Paul Krugman, both of them on the Republican and Democratic side, David Brooks on the Republican side and Paul Krugman on the, on the Democratic side, they both don't see how in the world everything's going to work out, meaning neither one of them is saying, this will all pan out okay. They're both of them saying, Lord have mercy, I have no idea what this is, where this is headed. The ingredients are just not there for a safe landing. So the question you should be asking is, do the leaders know this? 
Is it really incompetence or do they know something they're not telling? What Robert Charles Wilson is saying is that these are the signs to look for when people have already made the decision that all is lost. It's an interesting thing to come out of science fiction. Normally, because you won't get that from normal news analysis and you won't get that from normal scholarly stuff. You get that from science fiction. Let's continue going on. Well, and the other thing he says, of course, is that the other thing to expect for is, is behavior that's absolutely crazy. Suicidal behavior, fatwas, things like that. Suicide bombings. And in fact, we do get, this is the age of terrorism. Now, let's go over to my page 169. I'm using the hardcover, so let's find out what it is for yours. This is the chapter four photographs of the Kyriologe Delta. And that's two pages in. So what page is that chapter? I'm reading on a section that says, very little about the evolving social landscape surprised her. 204. What's that? The section is at the bottom of 204. Okay, the bottom of page 204 in the paperback version. Okay, let me read that. So every time we read this, we're going to go through a whole bunch of sections. I'm going to cover a lot today. And I want to make, I want you to, I want you to try to really fast on your feet. Just think real quick. What conclusions? What is Robert Charles Wilson trying to tell us? Remember, in a science fiction and politics class, you can speculate. You can speculate way beyond the normal bounds of, of, normal, of, of most classes. This is healthy to be able to do that. Very little about the evolving social landscape surprised her. One night, we sat in front of the TV watching coverage of the Stockholm riots. A mob of cod fishermen and religious radicals threw bricks through windows and burned cars. Police helicopters peppered the crowd with a tanglefoot gel until much of Gamla Stan looked like something of a tubercular Godzilla might have coughed up. I made a, fatu a fatuous remark about how badly people behave when they're frightened, and Molly said, Come on, Tyler, you actually feel sympathy for these assholes? I didn't say that, Mal. Because of the spin... They get a free pass to trash their parliament building. Why? Because they're frightened? It's not an excuse. It's a motive. They don't have a future. They believe they're doomed. Doomed to die. Well, welcome to the human condition. They're going to die. You're going to die. I'm going to die. And when was that ever not the case? We're all mortal. But we used to have the, cons the consolation of knowing the human species would go on without us. But species are mortal too. And that's changed. And all that's changed is that suddenly it's not way off in the foggy future. It's possible we'll all die together in some spectacular way in a few years. But even that's still just a possibility. And then he, this last thing he mentions, uh, the hypotheticals might keep us around longer than that for whatever unfathomable reason. But what basically is is being said here? It's a very simple point, but what's the, what's the, it's a simple but important point. <coughs> Simple but important point. Just because your death is being shown to you clearly doesn't mean this is really an excuse to uh, do things that you wouldn't normally. Even yes, but sort of in, in, in a general, he's talking about the whole society now. What about the society? Talk, talk in terms of politics and society, wide angle lens. It's not, you were mentioning in terms of a narrow individual that you would do something that you normally wouldn't do. This passage deals with the wide-angle version of that. 
society do the same thing people do when they really fit their instinct? Like, it's talking about how society is immortal, like, or species immortal, like, Let's be more specific. Let's be more specific. What did they trash? Exactly what did they trash in this passage? The parliament building. What is Robert Charles Wilson telling us? At the end, there's no government. What's that? At the end, there will be no government. It's not that there will be no government. Will we blame the government? It's not that they'll just blame the government. Well, I mean, the parliament building is a symbol of government. Yes. So they destroy it near the end of the and what does it mean? They destroy the building. People won't want government at the end. They'll destroy it. They'll take it down. The govern the, that means the country becomes ungovernable. The people destroy the government. So, in times when they are facing the end times, when things happen so that things when people look like things are going to just not work not work very well anymore, they burn it down. They destroy the government. When people see a fundamental shift, okay? Now, this happens a lot of times in societies that have revolutions. When societies have revolutions, they fundamentally have the populace rise up and destroy the old sources of government. When the Tsar was conquered in Russia, the attacks went on the, went, you know, right against the, the Tsar's palace. When the Nazis took over in the Weimar Republic, the burning of the Reichstag, so when people don't look at their government as a source of control anymore, but as an enemy, they rise up and knock it down. Sometimes it's peaceful. For example, when the former Soviet Union collapsed, it just melted away. That's what China's worried about right now. It's modernizing so fast, it's how to control the population in a situation of rapid modernization. Ironically, Russia is now looking to China as a model for how to govern itself because China is successfully navigating rapid rapid modernization at the same time rapid economic modernization at the same time working itself out of a rigid hierarchical communist system but still having some vestige of that keeping it orderly and Russia doesn't want to have a situation where it repeats what happened in the former Soviet Union. And it's actually not looking to the West. It's actually looking at China and saying, how are you guys managing this? Very, very fascinating. The cooperation between Russia and China now is very high. And they're looking at each other. Okay, And Russia is taking whatever lessons it can do, how to maintain order. What we get from Robert Charles Wilson is that when people feel that the time is just no longer there to support the government, they burn it down. They trash it. What Robert Charles Wilson is also telling us is if something were to happen that would threaten survivability of, the, of, a, of a particular society, what is government going to do? We read some passages earlier. The government is going to have to evacuate. The government's going to have to get out. What do you get when governments realize the jig is up, they can't control anymore? They hop on the helicopter and just get out of town because the mobs will come and tear the place down. And all governments face this as a possibility. This is what happens when the mob turns on the government. So one of, you'll one of the things that you'll see is that the elite will have the escape routes already planned out in advance because they know that will happen. 
That's what Robert Charles Wilson is saying in this passage, that mobs, the, ma- the masses eventually turn on the government when things like that happen. Very fascinating stuff. Now, let's, let's jump over. We're going to cover an awful lot of stuff. Let's talk about you folks. I'm going to page 177. Now, let's see what page this is on your books, which is the paperback you have. And um, actually, it's closer to the end of the chapter. So it's a page and a half in from the end of the chapter, and the chapter that follows is 4x 10 to the 9th power AD. 4 times 10 to the 9th power. Pardon me? We're in the same chapter that we were just in. Is that the same chapter? Okay, and the passage I'm going to start with is Jason sighed. This might sound cruel, but Edie doesn't understand. What's that? 216. Okay, let me read this. Now, remember, I read a passage and then really try to react really fast. What's happening? What's in there? This might sound cruel, Jason sighed, but Edie doesn't understand that his time has come and gone. My father is exactly what the world needed 20 years ago. I admire him for that. He's accomplished amazing, unbelievable things. Without E.D., that's his father, of course, to light fires under the politicians, there would never have been a perihelion. <coughs> One of the ironies of the spin is that the long-term consequences of E.D. Lawton's genius have come back to bite him. If E.D. had never existed, one Ngo Wen wouldn't exist. He was a Martian guy. I'm not engaged in some Oedipal struggle here. I know exactly what my father is and what he's done. He's at home with the corridors of power. Garland is his golf buddy. Great. But he's a prisoner too, a prisoner of his own short-sightedness. His days as a visionary are over. He dislikes one's plan because he distrusts the technology. He doesn't like anything he can't reverse engineer. He doesn't like the fact that the Martians can wield technologies we're only beginning to guess at. And he hates the fact that one has me on his side. Me... And I might add, a new generation of DC power brokers, including Preston Lomax, who's likely to be the next president. Suddenly, Edie's surrounded by people he can't manipulate. Younger people, people who've assimilated the spin in a way Edie's generation never did. People like us, Ty. What's going on here? You have a society in change. Go ahead. Um, he's saying that eventually there comes a time when the people in power, like their mentality doesn't, doesn't match like the way the young, like the younger generation is thinking. Okay, now let's, good. There comes a time when people in power and the things don't match. Now let's look. In a normal society that marches forward in time, what do you normally get? Remember, I can predict the future. I can do that. And I see it right now. All of the people who are in my university and elsewhere, in business and everywhere, who are like 50 years old, I see it, I see it. They're all going to get old, retire, and die. Yes, I see it. I'm going to predict that. They're all going to get old, retire, and die. And what will happen? I can see it now. Yes, you will replace them. That's exactly what will happen. You will become the people who will take their jobs. And it will all be nice and orderly. They will retire and die. And you know what will happen? They'll put in like 40 years or 30 years or even 20 years at the at the office. And then, you know... Everybody will look at them and say, let's give them a party. So they give them a party, but they're really saying, let's get this over with quick so we can get on our business, get the guy out of here. So they're booting the guy out the door, and then the guy goes off to a golf course, okay? And then you replace them, and you start doing the stuff that you want to do. 
And that's a normal cycle and it just goes on and on and on. But what happens when things fall apart? When Chinua Chebi says, when things fall apart, what happens when the society just starts crumbling? What do you get? You don't get that calm generational replacement where the older people get old, retire, and die, and you replace them. Something else happens. What happens? Um, you like usurp their power, like you take it away from them. Like there's a struggle, a generational struggle. That's right. There's an usurp- usurpation of power. You actually fight them. So normally, the people who are 40, 50, 60, you don't fight them. You just wait till they. You know, it's like the river going down the going down the riverbed. It will just go by itself. You don't fight the people 40, 50, and 60. You just wait for them. Because Courtney predicted the future. He said, they will get old, retire, and die. You say, well, I'm believing that. That's good. So, sure enough, they get old, retire, and die. But, if things start to fall apart, what Robert Charles Wilson is saying, you don't wait. You don't wait for the river to go down the riverbed. What you do is you fight them. There's a generational change. You fight, and you fight now, because time is short. And that's part of the chaos. And what you'll see is, when societies start to fall apart, there becomes a generational struggle that is not normally there. Because there's normally a generational replacement that's smooth and continuous. And so one of the signs you should be looking for is a generational struggle. So we're covering a lot of signs here. Signs of decay. First thing is, some the young people will start realizing, the, the older people are going to want to stay in power a little bit longer, but the younger people are going to be start starting to realize, no, the jig is really up, this thing is over. So they're not going to wait. So these are one of the signs. We saw Robert Charles Wilson saying they're going to be economic signs. There's going to be struggle signs with regard to people not seeing a future, suicidal type things, fatwas, suicide bombers, there'll be terrorism. There'll be people pulling the plugs on the economic aspects, running up debt like my stepmother, as if they're not going to have to pay because they know something that they're not, not, they know they're not going to have to pay. Those will be some signs. The other things that you'll start to see a little bit further on down the line, generational struggle, where the younger people aren't willing to wait until the older people get old, retire, and die. They want to push them out. We want to get hold of the reins of power quickly. So that's another sign that you're going to see. Now let's zip over my page 195. And this is three pages in from the chapter that starts, The Cold Places of the Universe. What chapter is that? What what section? It's after an ellipsis, the first ellipsis. And it starts, In the weeks heading up to the November election. So what page would that be? What would that? 239. Page 239 in the paperback. 195 in the hardback and page 239 in the paperback. Ready? Now remember, we'll read a passage and quickly react. In the weeks leading up to the November election, I saw more of Jason. His disease had become more active despite the escalating medication, possibly due to the stress caused by the ongoing conflict with his father, E.D., his father, had announced his intention to take back Perihelion from what he considered a global co- uh, a cabal of upstart bureaucrats and scientists aligned with uh, the Martian guy, one and go when, an empty threat in Jason's opinion, but potentially disruptive and embarrassing. 
Jace kept me close in case it was necessary to dose him with antispasmodics at some critical moment, which I was willing to do within the limits of law and professional ethics. Keeping Jace functional in the short term was the most that medical science could do for him. And staying functional long enough to outmaneuver E.D. Lawton was, for the moment, all that mattered to Jace. So I spent a lot of time with the VIP wing, in the VIP wing at Perihelion, usually with Jason, but often with one and go in. This made me an object of suspicion to the rest of one's handlers, an assortment of government sub-authorities, junior representatives from the State Department, the White House, Homeland Security, Space Command, etc., and academics who had been recruited to translate, study, and classify the so-called Martian archives. My access to one, in the eyes of these people, was irregular and unwelcome. He was a hireling, a nobody, but that was why one preferred my company. He had no agenda to promote or protect. And because he, he, and because he insisted, I was from time to time ushered by sullen toadies through the several doors that separated the Martian ambassador's air-conditioned quarters from the Florida heat and all the wide world beyond. What do you see is happening here? It's another sign. What do you see is happening here? It's another sign to look for when things fall apart. It has to deal with Madison's writing in the Federalist 10. How many people here have read the Federalist 10 of the Federalist papers? In high school, you should be reading them in high school. Uh, eventually, you'll, you have? What is it about? Um. I really honestly forget what's it. Um, okay. Well, you're going to have to take a political theory. If you major in political science, you'll have to take a political theory course eventually. Not for the joint major, but for the in math and political science, but for straight political science, you have to take a political theory course eventually. And they'll cover things like that. It has to do with factionalism. Oh. Factionalism. The founders originally, remember, the United States invented political parties. There were no political parties before the United States. And back in the old days, the founders were afraid of not political parties because they didn't exist. They were afraid of factions. And so they were wondering, would factions arise in the government and destroy it? And Madison was arguing, saying, no, the structure is all set out that factions won't tear everything apart. However, the interesting thing is, once, fact, once the government actually started running, it didn't take the founders very long to realize that they're not going to get anything done unless they have little factions. So they broke into factions all the, you know, right away. And that's how we got political parties. But one of the things that he's talking here is about Madison's Federalist 10. What is he saying? What is another sign that you should be seeing? E.D. had announced his intention to take back Perihelion from what he considered a cabal of upstart. What is he seeing? What are you seeing? New factions being made, breaks between old factions, uh, new parties splitting apart, like splitting of old parties and forming a new one. Yes, the factions are starting, but now, that's exactly right. But what about these factions? They're based on generations. What's that? They're split between generations. Generations? Like, yes, yes. Like the older generation is, 
has its concerns, but the younger generation is fighting it with its There's concerns. a generational component in these factions, it's true. But what about also the factions themselves? His intention, Edi had announced his intention to take back perihelion from what he considered a cabal. Normally, what do you get with factions when governments are working well? They take votes. They say, okay, you won this one, I'll win the next one. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's a little bit of log rolling. You get the idea? But when things fall apart, what happens to the factions? That's right. There's no compromise. There's polarization. I was talking to Alan Abramowitz, who, do, who studies uh, American elections. He's in our department. He's actually a famous person in the area of American elections. You should take a course with him. And he was showing me some plots, and I recognized what was on the plots right away. The good thing about people who do math and political science, we can just look at some graphs and recognize immediately what he's talking about. And he says, this is what the government was in terms of... a. The, 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 the House and so on in terms of uh, moderates, liberals, and, and uh, conservatives before the election and then after the election. He showed me the two plots. I just looked at him and I said, whoa, look at that. A complete evacuation of the center. What you get with the factions is polarization. There's no center anymore. The moderates are gone. The people go off on the wings. They don't compromise. What Obama is facing now is a government in total polarized lockjaw. There's no moderates. They're just gone. What you have is a polarized house of representatives. And in a situation like that, what is Robert Charles Wilson telling us? Each side is trying to take over from the other. None of them are talking about, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's a war. And it's a winner-take-all war. Winner-take-all war. It's not a situation of compromise and let's make do. When things start to fall apart, the other sign that Robert Charles Wilson is saying is look for polarization, factionalization that becomes desperate. This is exactly what Federalist 10 was trying to argue. Madison was trying to argue in Federalist 10. Wouldn't happen. That's exactly what we've got now. A dire economic situation, people pulling the plugs on the economy, and a government that's in total lockdown, totally polarized. These are the signs that you should be looking for. So you can get this from science fiction. Isn't this cool? Really quick, we've got to do this quickly. We all have only a few more minutes, actually. I'm going to zip over to my page 205, and then I'm going to jump near the end because I want to make sure we cover some things that are... Now, my page 205, uh, let me see what chapter we're in here so I can uh, tell you in the paperback where to go to. It's, it looks like it's closer to the end. Yes, it's closer to the end. It's uh, about uh, three pages in from the chapter that is called Sacrificial Rights. So go to Sacrificial Rights and then go three pages into the section that says, Please, I'm not delusional. Oh, 252. What's that? 252. 252 in the paperback version. 252, okay? Please, I'm not delusional. That's the point. Running perihelion means playing to the interested parties. All of them, Edie knows that, 
he's perfectly cynical about it. He turned perihelion into a dollar windfall for the aerospace industry. And he did it by making friends and forging political alliances in high places, by cajoling and pleading and lobbying and funding friendly campaigns. He had a vision and he had contacts. And he was in the right place at the right time. He stepped forward with Aerostat program and rescued the telecom industry from the spin. And that dropped him into the company of powerful people. He knows how to exploit an opportunity. Without E.D., there wouldn't have been human beings on Mars. Without E.D. Lawton, Wang Wen wouldn't even exist. Give the old guy of credit. He's a great man. But, but he's a man of his time. He's pre-spin. His motives are archaic. The torch has been passed, or will be, if I have anything to do with it. I don't know what that means, Jace. E.D. thinks there's still personal advantage he can wring out of all of this. I'm going to stop now because we're running out of time in terms of this passage. I was going to read a little bit more into it. But what's the basic idea he's getting out of, he's getting here? I'm not sure if this is where you're getting at, but... Um, <coughs> it's something we've covered already, but go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was trying to talk about the like, severe difference in mentalities between generations. That's right. In fact, turn the page and look at the paragraph where he says, uh, he talks about an ideal dealing with the hypotheticals. And he says, is it a bad idea? And he says, it might yield a little trivial information, eke out a little data and funnel cash into the industry. That's what it's designed to do. But Evie doesn't understand what his generation doesn't, what his generation doesn't truly understand. Uh, and what's that, Jace? It's right. The, the generations themselves, they really question whether the other generation understands what situation. And especially the younger generation begins to say, does the, under, does the older generation really understand the situation? Again, we get to a situation where we get polarization in government, but also polarization among the generations. So the generation that's younger looks at the generation that's older and says, we simply can't compromise with those people. An ageist war, it's not just an ideological war, but an ageist war, a war against the ages, a war against older people. And it's a struggle because those people still have some access to power. And what Robert Charles Wilson is saying, that they're going to try to use that, those levers of power to the very end and that the younger generation is going to say, we're going to have to push them out and hard. Go ahead. Uh, well, something you said about factionalism was that... Um, in a properly functioning government society, factions are able to compromise and work well together. Um, and so I think that one of the things that uh, Robert Charles Wilson is saying is that in, I don't, I don't know, in a properly functioning government society, uh, that only in that context can you get a nice transition from an older generation of power to a younger generation of power. And then that's, when the uh, the conflict arises, when there isn't, when not everything is all right, then you get the uh, the dispute between the two. Yeah, that is, it's 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 only when things in the outside world don't continue to work well that you get that dispute. Yeah, that is what he's basically saying. That he says when it's it's only when things meaning most times people don't question what's happening in society. As long as things keep going okay, they don't question. And that's what Russia is asking China. China is saying, look, as long as you keep things okay, the people won't rebel. You just have to keep things okay. 
And that's what Russia is asking China. They're saying, how do you just make sure everything is okay so that people don't rebel? Okay, I want to go over now to page... I'm going to go near the end. 335. I'm going to zip near the end. Okay, there's a lot of things I'm not going to talk about in the middle. Now, my page 335 is the hardback. And it's it's in the chapter called Ars Moriendi sort of near the end. It's about two and a half pages in from the end of Mars Oriendi. And it starts with the uh, section, the hypotheticals, whether considered as one organism or many. This is two, two, like two pages in from the chapter four times 10 to the ninth power AD, we all land somewhere. 417. 417? Yeah. Okay. Um, in the paperback, page 417, the hypotheticals, whether considered as one organism or many, had evolved from the first von Neumann devices to inhabit our galaxy. So now they're talking about the hypotheticals themselves. We're coming to the end. We're actually, in, they actually have understood a little bit more about what the hypotheticals are doing. The origin of those primal self-replicating machines was obscure. So these are machines that were eventually sent out, became sentient, and uh, started to grow throughout the galaxy. Their descendants had no direct memory of it, any more than you or I can remember human evolution. They may have been the product of an early emerging biological culture of which no trace remains. They may have migrated from another, older galaxy. In either case, the hypotheticals of today belong to an almost unimaginably ancient lineage. These are the groups that actually created the barrier surrounding Earth, the spin. They had seen sentient biological species evolve and die on planets like ours countless times. By passively teleporting organic material from star to star, star to star, they may even have helped seed the process of organic evolution. And they had watched biological cultures generate crude von Neumann networks as a byproduct of their accelerating but ultimately unsustainable complexity, not once but many times. To the hypotheticals, we all look more or less like replicator nurseries, strange, fecund, fragile. From their point of view, this endless, stuttering gestation of simple von Neumann networks, followed by the rapid ecological collapse of source planets, was both a mystery and a tragedy. A mystery because transient events on a purely biological timescale were difficult for them to comprehend or even perceive. A tragedy because they had begun to conceive of these progenitor cultures as failed biological networks akin to themselves, growing toward real complexity but snuffed out prematurely by finite planetary ecosystems. For the, for the hypotheticals then, the spin was meant to preserve us and dozens of similar situations, civilizations, I'm sorry, and dozens of similar civilizations that had arisen on other worlds before and since in our technological prime. But we weren't museum pieces frozen in place for public display. The hypotheticals were re-engineering our destiny. They had suspended us in slow time while they built, while they put together the, the pieces of a grand experiment, an experiment formulated over billions of years and now nearing its ultimate goal, to build a vastly expanded biological landscape into which 
these otherwise doomed cultures could expand and in which they would eventually meet and intermingle. I didn't immediately grasp the meaning of this, an expanded biological environment bigger than the earth itself. We were courting full darkness now. Jason's words were interrupted by convulsive movements and involuntary sounds edited out of, of his accent. Periodically, I checked his heartbeat, which was rapid and growing weaker. The hypotheticals, he said, can manipulate time and space. The evidence of that is all around us, but creating a temporal membrane is neither the beginning nor the end of their abilities. They can literally connect our planet through spatial loops to others like it, new planets, some artificially designed and nurtured to which we can travel instantaneously and easily, travel by ways of links, bridges, structures, structures assembled by the hypotheticals, assembled from, if this is truly possible, a matter of dead, the matter of dead stars, neutron stars, structures literally dragged through space patiently, patiently over a course of millions of years. What's here? And this is the last thing we'll talk about. Go ahead. The hypotheticals try to protect Earth from the extinction, but people don't know about who they are or what they want from people on Earth. So they suspect the hypotheticals and they protect there's a struggle. Always people are struggling against their protectors. That's exactly right. And that's actually a good point. I'd like to come back to that because it's actually a very important point. Go ahead. There's also a communication problem because the hypotheticals are so completely different from us. They have no way of communicating with us. They don't we can't just communicate with them. So we don't know that they're trying to protect us because they didn't tell us that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, go ahead. It's kind of a lot like Ender's Game. If you read like the later novels of the book, it said like there's a serious lack of communication between like the buggers and the humans because they didn't communicate in the same way. Okay, in the Ender's, Ender's Game. Some kind of mutual like, yeah. agreement. The communication there. breakdown between species. You know, in the, because we're so pressed on time, I want to I want to point it in a slightly different direction. We're looking now towards communication breakdowns between humans and advanced species. But in reality, this is no different than the communication breakdown that we have between us and other species on our planet. You see, we can relate this to how humans preserve species here, endangered species. Uh, even in zoos, what we have is a situation in which species because of whatever, sometimes their own activities, sometimes because of human activities, often of human activities, become threatened. And we want to preserve them. For whatever reason, we say we would rather have a future in which those species are around. So what he's saying is that a, there comes a time in the evolution of a species in which that species holds itself in a delicate balance where it may not be able to survive anymore. And what do you do at a point in time if that happens, when that happens? What will happen if humanity gets to a point where it gets to a point where it might go off the deep end? You'll see warning signs but also you'll have the possible intervention of outside forces and that we may not be able to understand or communicate. It's not like 
they would sit down to dinner with us and sort of explain. If something like that was going to happen, you'd do two things. You'd see a planetary society that didn't understand them, thought conspiratorially about them, and you'd have another society, a more evolved society, not really being able to communicate with us very well either. So things, how would we protect an endangered species? We would capture them, we'd force locate them into certain areas, protected areas, sometimes put them into zoos. Now we get to Lao Chen's point. They would fight back. You ever try to capture an animal? It kicks you. It doesn't like it. But you're trying to save it. In South Africa, they do it all the time. They try to move elephants. You ever try to move an elephant? You have to be able to protect these, 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 these creatures. Okay. The last thing I want to point out, and this is a, an interesting aspect of the whole thing, is that when we think of ourselves as protecting you know, other species, we have to understand that there are events that could happen that could be horrific, that could be terminal. And if such events did happen, we'd have to ask, would anyone intervene in a way that we would not be able to understand? Now, this is a course in science fiction and politics, so I'm going to raise something that will have to be considered speculative. Because the astronomical community currently has not gotten any agreement on this. The asteroid belt. What is the current predominant theory for the formation of the asteroid belt? Well, they had a global, you had a, a solar nebula. And in the solar nebula, you had a lot of gaseous, gases swirling around and they started to condense into the sun and planets. And the asteroid belt just didn't make it. There's not enough material in the asteroid belt to be collected at all to make a whole planet. It just didn't get there. Now, the first astronomer to discover the first asteroid and the second astronomer to discover the second asteroid both came up with conclusions, holy Moses, that was once a planet and it blew up. And it was the third astronomer who had greater prestige who said, no, this is ridiculous. Planets can't blow up. What you have is the solar nebula never really formed. And now we have a situation in which the dominant theory for the formation of the asteroid belt, basically all astronomers agree, not all astronomers, most 99% of the astronomers say, was the solar nebula hypothesis. But there's some glaring facts that are being ignored. And the facts are, some of these asteroids are huge. And they're hard, solid rocks that required a gravity well in order to form in the first place. It's not just dust that banged together and formed the, the series asteroid. Some of these things are huge, and they needed solid rock. And in addition, there's evidence on the asteroids that have been exposed to extreme heat crystallization. The evidence can go either way in some respects. Now, this is speculative, mind you, but the, the debate in the scientific community has stopped. But, the, but there are a few astronomers, astronomers like uh, Tom Van Flandern, for example, who argued to his death that the astronomical community is just not capable of looking at the facts straight. There was a planet there at one point, and it blew up. We don't know why it blew up. 
And he said, the idea that only stars should be able to blow up is nuts. Why can't planets blow up? We don't really know what could cause a, you know, any planet or anything to blow up. We don't know enough about planets to know that there could be something natural. There could be a, a uranium is very heavy. It's possible maybe it could just sink to the center of the planet. If there was enough uranium, it could self-ignite. There could even be a war that could detonate a planet, Star Wars style. There could be all types of things that could happen, but we have to understand that with all of the explosions that we see out there, they can't all be stars. Sometimes there could be planets that could explode. We just don't understand the dynamics of stellar explosions and we don't understand the dynamics of planetary explosions. But we don't want to face the idea that a planet could explode because that puts us in a risky situation. <laughs> we don't want to be around planets that explode. So the astronomical community says, but we don't know have any mechanism by which that could happen. But people like Tom Van Flandern say, well, you know, there's evidence that it has happened for whatever mechanism. For, you know, we'll, we'll figure out the mechanism later. The evidence suggests that there, it may have actually happened. The asteroid belt does seem to have been a planet that exploded. And the comets that they come in, that dip in, they're relatively new. They have lots of gases that are spewing out, and ice and stuff like that. If they had been around since the beginning of the solar system, none of that would still exist. They wouldn't have all that stuff. If they, would have, they would have worked itself out. But these comets that are dipping in uh, you know, have rather fresh material. That's not that shouldn't be there. So that's what Tom Van Blandern was saying. He's saying that plus a whole bunch of other stuff. So the thing is, what if something really was threatening a solar system? Now add a thousand years to our existence. Add a million years to our existence. Can you then imagine what would happen if we discovered a solar system nearby that had life? and it had a planet that was possibly going to explode, what would we do? We would see the extinction of that entire planetary system. Chaos. Would we intervene? These are questions that go way beyond anything that's asked in normal academic circles. But they're fascinating questions to ask. We don't really have answers for them. But this is what you should get the most of out of science fiction and politics. Questions, not answers. You should be courageous to ask any, any question. And anybody, any academic, anyone who says, that's stupid, don't go down that road, that's the wrong person to listen to. Because in reality, all great thoughts come from people who are willing to ask questions that other people simply were not willing to ask. That's the difference between a great person and a not great person the great person will be willing to let their minds go in a situation, in an area in which other people refuse to let their minds go. That was basically what Einstein did with the special theory of relativity. He said it was really quite simple. I just let my mind conceive of things that other people were not willing to do. It didn't have anything to do with mathematics. I just did pictures in my mind. That's what he said. Okay. Well, that's it for spin.